Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today, we're discussing Star Trek Prodigy Season 1 episodes Masquerade and Preludes. And in our mini-episode last week, I may have suggested that your predictions for Preludes were wrong because the episode we actually got was Masquerades, and then we got Preludes, and it turns out you were completely correct. That's right. I was right. I was right about <laughs> Preludes. I blame Wikipedia, yep. although it's possibly I read it incorrectly. <laughs> I'm going to blame your chaos powers. You are completely right. You are just also wrong. <laughs> it's exactly how the chaos powers work. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. But let's talk about Masquerade first. And honestly, I don't have as much to say about this as I expected. Like, you know, I love Romulans and I support the Tal Shiar in everything they do. And it was really cool to see, you know, the Picard era Tal Shiar armor design. I loved all the Easter eggs and the, the references to the evacuation and everything. I just wanted more Romulan nonsense. And sadly, of course, this is an, is an episode of Star Trek Prodigy, which rightly has different priorities. <laughs> Fair Prodigy. I don't have much to say about it because everything that happened was reversed. And so it was really just about feelings yes which is great i love feelings i'm all <laughs> about that but the plot didn't move forward in any meaningful way except contrary to our very certain predictions we found out exactly who dal is and where he comes from and good news we know who your family is bad news they are literally the worst family in the entire quadrant i'm sorry you're a sung <laughs> I mean, he is a sung, but he's not as much of a sung as the other sons. It's actually in the very beginning of Preludes where he's complaining that he mm. needs more than a day to get over the fact that he's a failed genetic experiment. And I just want to tell Dahl from the bottom of my heart that makes him the best son. <laughs> yes, yes. Failing at being a son is A+. Plus. I just want Dahl and Soji to hang out. Like, they're cousins, basically. That's how I yes. want it to go. And they could bond over being bad at being sons. Yeah. It would be perfect. By being good people. Yeah. By being good people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, the good members of their family are Data and Lal, who have both passed, and Soji and Dahl. That's right. Sorry, guys. We should have known. Dal does, in fact. <laughs> Dal, Lal. Yeah. I oh like my it. gosh. <laughs> and I did think it was very funny that O'Connor's sole role in this was to trigger Dal's envy and lead him to meet the geneticist and then nope out of the situation as soon as it got difficult. To set up the wonderful line from Gwyn that. He'll never be as good as Akano because he's way better. <laughs> Which, truth. Yeah. Truth bomb, Gwyn. And it's hilarious. I actually, like, I loved him noping out. Yes, and, and yes. I loved him being mistaken as the captain mm -hmm. and then being completely willing to abandon children yes. <laughs> to the Romulans. <laughs> 
Yes. That was great. I was like, I was right about this character all along. He is complete nonsense. I'm not supposed to like him. It's good. I really appreciate that we have the writers bringing back a character that they loved from season two of The Next Generation and, you know, Star Trek's Han Solo, a character who should be objectively cool and just dunking on him like this. I know I've said that the O'Connor appeal is completely lost to me, and it is, but I respect this choice so deeply. Yes, exactly. It's really great. Yeah. It's actually adorable that Dahl was put off by Akana, who is, in my opinion, objectively not great. <laughs> right. Like, before he noped out, he was already a nothing. <laughs> like, everyone on the Prodigy had more to offer their mission. Yeah, and their children. Than him, and yeah. their children, who, who accidentally ended up here. Mm. I also feel like O'Connor is sort of who Dahl could have become if he had somehow escaped Tars Lamora, but not through the Federation. Without, without Janeway. without his friends. Yeah, without, yeah. Without this crew to turn him into the wonderful person that he is. Yes. Because he's always had this seed of being a good person, but he's also had selfishness and charm without integrity. And I think as with all people at that sort of late adolescent age, that is the point where you have to start making the choices that will lead you to be a good or bad adult. And those choices, if you make bad ones, can be undone. I'm not saying you're set in stone at age 17, but... O'Connor really is a what might have been for Dahl, and I love that he hates that. <laughs> Good writing again. Good job. Good job. Yeah. And then we have the revival of the whole genetic manipulation thing with the Federation, which hypothetically Strange New Worlds is going to touch on briefly, I assume, in season two, because they barely touched on it in season one. And I'm really hoping that Prodigy as it has with everything else before, takes the time to explore this properly. There was a really wonderful interview with Aaron Waltke. I respectfully fangirl him a lot, but he had an interview with Trek Corps and he was saying the first half of the season was about setting up the ideals of the Federation and the second half of the season is about finding the cracks in those ideals. And this is exactly what I would do if I was smart enough to be writing Prodigy. But he said the question is not just what can Dahl learn from Starfleet, but what Starfleet can learn from Dahl. That's what I always want. Yeah. It's always what I want. I'm, I'm, whenever I'm talking about the redeemable villains or the misfits that I latch onto, like Rolaren and mm. the entire cast of Voyager except Janeway and possibly Tuvok, although I kind of think Tuvok's a misfit too. <laughs> and have those broken pieces sort of mm -hmm. meet up with the shiny Starfleet ideal and be a mirror to show them that absolutely they can both learn from each other. That yes. it doesn't have to be a one-way exchange of you have to become Starfleet in order to be a good moral member of the universe. It's sort of the flip side of what Picard did with Rios and Rafi where they're in Starfleet and so their problems are very much on the back burner. You know, especially especially Rios. He 
was treated abominably by Starfleet and he seems okay with that. Whereas I think Dahl will get to have a much more nuanced and complex story. Yes. And you have this note, the Federation versus geneticists, where is the line? And I feel like in some ways it really... Like, I understand why Starfleet has this, or why the Federation and humanity in particular has a taboo against genetic manipulation and a feeling that even in the utopia of this era, they don't trust themselves to use that power responsibly. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're bored with a chronic illness, they'll cure that. But if you're born short, they won't make you tall. If you're born a bad singer they won't make you a good one it's an interesting question so i'm always talking about how i don't want them to discover the ability to clone people because i don't want to march for clone rights because that's where i would be mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> I, I would be on the side of the clones just like i'm on the side of the cylons and i'm on the side of soji and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, the jurassic park Ian Malcolm, life will find a way and and you have to think about it before you decide to do it. Yes. Like, let's talk about hearing impaired, the deaf and hard of hearing community and how it is a separate culture Mm -hmm. that they are very proud of. They have their own language or even like the actually autistic movement. Yeah, yeah. This is just a facet of my being it's part of my identity. It's not a disorder that needs to be fixed. And so the part of the episode, Masquerade, I really hated Dahl's transformations. Same. You know how you were upset about Murph that I was just like, no, no, no all of this is no, a no. no, no. <laughs> yes, this is bad. Bring back my son. And he is like, there's that little bit of his ear that's missing and there's the little thing above his eyebrow and it's like those are dull and I don't want to fix any of them like none of the quote-unquote flaws and that was sort of the point of that arc for him was that the geneticist saw him and immediately wanted to fix him and make everything better and he didn't need to be fixed and so there's a lot of people in this world who don't need to be fixed Right. But I also am not against the idea of helping people who do want to change things that right. aren't working for them. Right. Like, if I could cure my rheumatoid arthritis in a snap, I would. Would I make myself neurotypical? Mm, probably not. And you have this with Geordie, too, where people say, oh, why were you allowed to be born? Why haven't you been fixed? And he's like, well, this is me and this is how I am. And actually, I don't need to be fixed because I am fine the way I am. And I like it. Yes. <laughs> I like me. So I do always think about, you know, where is that line? I dye my hair constantly. Right. It's My hair is often many different <laughs> colors. So that might seem silly. That might seem like a, a silly thing to compare to to these kinds of things. But it is a part of my genetics. I'm a brunette, but not always because I can change it very easily. And so I can imagine this future where we can change things very easily. And it, it is interesting to think about what are the 
questions that we need to think about in the Ian Malcolm way before we move forward. Right. Because we, we don't want to erase something that is actually important. Right. To the, the human condition. <laughs> and it's interesting that Starfleet treats people who were transformed without their consent or against their will, like Dahl or Julian Bashir, the same way they treat Una, who chose to transform herself to become a human so that she could join Starfleet. And again, I think it's kind of absurd that the human taboo against eugenic manipulation means that the Illyrians are outcast when it's part of their culture. But that is also a very realistic source of conflict that makes sense to me emotionally mm-hmm. and i hope that will be resolved in strange new worlds but it's interesting that star trek keeps coming back to this well over and over again and it's very cool to me that this idea that was sort of a retcon in ds9 has become important enough that now it's driving a whole protagonist these are big questions too to be dealing with in a kids series and Yet Willow, the, oh, the yeah. new Willow TV series debuted this week, and I love it. I love Willow the movie, and this series, you know, I've only seen the first two episodes, but it seems to be a, a, an absolute continuation of that mm. reality. They could have made the Game of Thrones version of Willow, and that would be horrible. Right. <laughs> so I'm really glad they understood what they were doing and made the Willow version of Game of Thrones <laughs> instead. But that doesn't mean that there aren't big questions mm. about identity and that there aren't monsters. Like it, the original Willow is heartwarming and also terrifying. And I think that, you know, there's this sort of movement these days. I feel like the scary parts people shy away from putting those in kids stuff. Yeah. In a way that they didn't in the eighties. And And maybe that's good, speaking as someone who is still deeply traumatized by Return to Oz. But <laughs> But there's a balance. There that's also an interesting line of where is the line. And so I'm I'm glad that Prodigy is not afraid of big questions that yeah. don't have easy answers and maybe don't have any answers that we can consider in our time period where we don't have any of this the ability to do any of this anyway you know maybe we can't fully answer the question Mm. maybe we can only discuss it and i think that their willingness to ask the questions anyway and to engage with those questions is really to be commended i agree it's not just a big science fiction question bioethics is a big real world question and probably will be even more so as the target audience grows up. And it's not just preparing kids for a lifetime of being Trekkies, we hope, but it's preparing them for a lifetime of consuming science fiction in all media. And I think that's wonderful. Then we have the kids versus the Tal Shiar, where they mostly only survive because of Murph, and it turns out he's a homicidal goo ball. And I'm into it. I am reluctantly getting used to new Murph. I mean, it's exciting to me that he is now the security officer. Yes. That he has a role on the ship, that he has defined his place, that he's no longer someone's pet, and mm. now he's a part of the crew. So I think it's great that he has more to do and that he was able to communicate what he wanted. 
yes and do it and then he went back in his wall when he was when he was done and but so i i have my note here that murph is groot absolutely because he has the same character arc so far you know Rock Talk is the one who, who understands him the best, the way that Rocket understands Groot mm-hmm. more than the rest of them. And he is, you know, something that you throw at people. Yes. <laughs> Instead of, you know, someone who has a very specific place and, and role to be, and yet is clearly becoming, you know, very much a part of the crew. Everybody is now friends with Murph. And then in this episode, in Masquerade, he even did the like I'm becoming the elevator for you so yes. that you can take off your little which is exactly what Grutu does in, in the first movie at the end and I was yeah. just like oh and also of course had the transformation from you know one version to the next version but right. it's still the same future so yeah. Yeah, I was like oh, I like it I'm gonna it say baby nice. Groot is cuter than Groot. you Murph well but that's <laughs> true that's true but think about teen Groot. Oh yeah, no, he was the worst. Like so I no. love him, but <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. This is this is teen Groot maybe. <laughs> I really enjoyed how you compared him to a cat a few weeks ago and then this really is basically like putting your cat in charge of security. <laughs> Which is I will say my kitten would be good at it. I believe in Bruno. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not Harvey. and then Janeway almost destroys the protostar which is so true to care I was just going to say think of every time she almost blows up the ship in Voyager they really understand Janeway I don't understand why people want a live action Janeway series by the Star Trek Picard team when Janeway is getting better writing in half a season of Prodigy than she had in whole seasons of Voyager. Seriously. I'm so happy with everything Janeway, both Janeways. Mm. It's just really, really fun and wonderful. The only way I would be happy or excited for a live-action Janeway series at this point would be if it had the cast of Prodigy playing their Prodigy characters. Yeah, I was going to say, if David Diggs is not Tysus in right. I don't want it. Yeah. Like, yeah. sorry. And also I wanted to sing. At the beginning of Preludes, they yes. were speaking in rhyme. <laughs> I was very happy. <laughs> it was really wonderful for me personally it really felt like that classic star trek thing of putting two great theater actors in a room together they probably weren't recording together and just letting them be nerds it was just good good and i love him like in you know whatever three minutes of screen time and he's one of my favorite star trek characters (laughs) he is closely rivaling shran as my all-time favorite andorian and again in like three minutes and 20 seconds of that was maybe calling Janeway out for having too many feelings about Chakotay so obviously I'm biased but also being absolutely in her corner yes the way every crew of Janeway is everybody secretly loves Janeway everybody who works for her except Ensign Asensia 
Well, As it turns out. She, she doesn't she doesn't actually work for her. She's working against her. Look, if Essentia or the Vindicator turns out to be Team Janeway, I will only be mildly surprised. Fully. Mm. Which I guess brings us to Preludes and the episode where we were right about everything except the specifics of everything. <laughs> right about the fake picture. Yeah, yeah. Not all the details. <laughs> Look, that's how it's been through the whole of Prodigy. It's like being at the beach and you see the waves coming, but you don't know how they're going to feel until you're actually in them. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Again, I, I cannot praise the Raiders enough. Especially because this was an episode where the whole writer's room was credited. And they said that on Twitter and I was like, oh no. But it did not feel like writer soup. It felt like... Honestly, I'm guessing that mm. everybody got one of the backstory for Rock Talk, backstory for Zero, backstory for Jane Gum, backstory for Chicote, backstory for Essentia. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> that's, that's how it was split up. Yeah. And it felt really cohesive. And, okay, Trekcore has very good reviews, but they said that Rock Talk had the weakest backstory because we still don't know how she was abducted, how she came to be in the alien fighting ring. And look, I can see that, but I like that there are still questions to be answered. And her whole story broke my heart. I mean, I don't think... I'm not, I think weakest is a weird... Mm. A weird adjective to put on any of them mm -hmm. but i would say that there are questions about all of them still right i mean i guess zeros if we're using weakest and strongest yours is is the strongest because they said we were out exploring mm -hmm. which is an explanation i don't know why jankum was in cryo sleep and why he was chosen to be the one to to wake up or like and yeah i guess i don't know how rock talk ended up there but i can certainly imagine it and it's really tragic and sad and horrible yeah, and about yeah. human trafficking so right <laughs> i feel like the answers you can you can plug in mm -hmm. pretty quickly on your own and i don't want to know everybody's there won't be any story left. Right. If we learn everything. We don't need to be spoon-fed every detail. It's interesting mm -hmm. to speculate about pre-Federation, pre-warp, Tellarite, space travel. That's cool. It's cool that to know cool. that they press their orphans into service. That's kind of messed up in a way that I think humans will understand. Especially that he already had the disability. Yes. Again. I can imagine the, the terrible <laughs> story about how he, as a disabled orphan, was chosen to throw into space because no one would miss him. Yes. <laughs> we don't need more tragedy, but there's absolutely more oh, tragedy yeah. you could place on all of them. <laughs> yes. Rock's story was really interesting to me because I've just finished my Avatar rewatch. And I was thinking about Rock as contrasted with the character of Toph Bei Fong, who, for those of you who haven't watched Avatar, is a 12-year-old girl who's an earthbender. So she manipulates rock and stone. And she is blind, so she is often underestimated and treated as much younger and less able than she is. Toph is introduced in basically an earthbending wrestling match, and she's the champion. And it's like Rock's 
tournament. But Toph's whole thing is that she's a little girl who wants to be seen as a monster. And Rock is a little girl made of rocks who wants to be understood as a little girl. And so I think they'd either be best friends or worst enemies or possibly both. Mm-hmm. But also the contrast and the similarities between Toph, who is one of the most iconic female characters of, you know, first decade of the 21st century animation, and Rock Toph, who I think is going to be iconic in her own right. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's intentional. Avatar casts a long shadow, but it's also an old show now. But it made me happy to think about well, I can definitely, I mean, it is also a Nickelodeon series. Yes. Right? So I can absolutely see it being in the vein of, mm. you know. I love Rock because she is so different from the little girl character that you normally get. She looks different, obviously, mm. and I think that that's important. But she's also... She wants to be a scientist and she's the smartest of them all. And there's just a lot. She has many layers, you know, the quote structures an onion. Because she, she is not feminine in any external way, but she loves the stereotypical little girl things of soft animals and pretty objects. And like you say, she has layers. And is she not feminine because she has never been given the opportunity or simply because she doesn't perceive aesthetics that way. Either answer is interesting to me. I really liked her vignette. I liked that the hero that Mm. she was fighting was like that old guy. Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know, he got her even when they decided to flip the switch and change the story. Mm. He understood and he played along because he supported that like yeah and i want to know how this bajoran came to be out there in this ring yeah trekcor interpreted him as her master owner whatever i think he was as much a prisoner as she was yeah i think that they were both prisoners it was very gladiator yeah for me yeah and it also reminds me of glow you know or like professional wrestling in general right right but there is in glow there's that one character who is the sister or daughter of a mexican wrestling family and she wants to be both the wrestler but also the sister and the daughter and the girl and yeah yeah have both sides and so that you know i was like oh so there was a lot in this in this little tiny story you know right i think actually rock talks is my favorite of the stories because there is so much there why are the kazon enslaving people i assume thanks to the collapse of the borg that they're using borg transport conduits like everyone else to get around the Mm -hmm. quadrant and maybe this has scattered them even more, so they're struggling more than ever to form a cohesive and positive society, and so you have these bands of Kazon slavers going around. I want to know what the Kazon guy on Tumblr thinks of this. It's one of those, you know, they were such jokes, Mm. really, and they still are, sort of. Like, this is an adding anything new for the Kazon. Yeah. I want them to have depth. Yeah. Kala got depth in like his final 20 seconds on this series. And I, right, I'm, right. I've been wanting 
that to you know be paid off since. So I am once again going to remind the writers of Prodigy, who definitely listen to us, that mm-hmm. Seska's kid is of the right age to join the crew. But right. like, we haven't <laughs> seen a female Tellarite, and we haven't seen a female Kazon. And both of these absences are really starting to loom large for me. I agree. I thought it was interesting that the robot on the Tellarite ship was not only female-voiced, as robots mm. so often are, but was polite in a non-Tellarite way. And I wonder if they programmed their artificial intelligences like that so that they remember that they're not really people, but also so that they have the satisfaction of being rude to them. Because rudeness is so valued in Tellarite society. That's so interesting. Mm. You're right. I didn't think about it that way. You could call it a plot hole, but I'd rather call it world building. No, I like your interpretation a lot. I was, of course, thrilled that we got anything at all about Jacob Pod. Yes. I liked the explanation for why he's Jenkin Pop and why he speaks in the third person and always uses his full name. That was great. Uh, I think you mean heartbreaking. Yeah, it yes, heartbreaking. But also great that there's like mm. a heartbreaking reason. It's not a quirk. Mm. It's mm. a choice on his part. And I think that that's what he needed. He needed more depth. And so... It's a choice, but anything. it's also a trauma response. It was definitely a trauma response. He spent so long with this robot who would only acknowledge him if he referred to himself in the third person. And, now and that's still how... never remembered him. Yeah. Still yeah. never learned. Like, that's really, really tragic. Right. Jacob Pog's story is really tragic. Again, he was a disabled orphan <laughs> who was sent into space for reasons unknown. And, and then... then... His life got worse. And his life got worse. It's like Battlestar Galactica. You start with the apocalypse and then it's all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) But, (laughs) so, I mean, thank goodness that Jenkin Pog is now a member of our crew and has people who actually respect him. Yes. Who think that he has a lot to offer, who look to him to, Mm -hmm. to... fix the ship at the very beginning of the episode you know doll was like it's not my job to fix the ship that's your job and on one hand that could be flippant and obnoxious mm-hmm. but on the other hand that is a show of respect to jenko Park. i think in this instance it was both <laughs> right because that's what doll does yes i really do find it interesting that gwyn who is the most educated is also the most emotionally intelligent in terms of recognising that they need to talk and giving everyone space to do so. And when Rock Talk doesn't want to, Gwyn doesn't say, you don't have to, because Rock Talk already knows that. She says, Mm -hmm. it's okay to tell us. And I think that is so respectful of Rock Talk, but also understanding that Rock needs an explicitly safe place. And she's the one who says that Jankum Pop is royalty. She's yeah. like, you know what? I absolutely agree with your interpretation of yourself because mm. you have proven that it is earned. Yes. And I'm ready to give that to you. And it's just this simple little moment. But yeah, mm. you're right. She is the best 
at understanding what people need, which is why she's the communications officer and slash counselor on the yes. ship. And I think that that's wonderful. It's also because she was raised by a psychopath. And when you're raised by an abusive parent, even one who is not explicitly abusive, like the diviner, you have to become very, very good at reading moods and recognizing when a situation is about to turn. And so for Gwyn too, this is a trauma response, but it's actually a really healthy one at this stage. It wasn't allowed to go on so long as to become pathological. So my therapist once shared with me this book that was basically, let's discuss mental health through the lens of Greek goddesses. You've discussed this book before. Yes. And so Gwyn reminds me of me (laughs) and my Persephone trauma response Mm, of mm. I went through this darkness and now my goal in life is to help other people out of it. Yes. You know, I love Gwyn as first officer. I love her as captain. I love her as communications, but she's sort of like Katrina Cornwell for me in that she can do all of these things and be a therapist. I don't know how long her people live, but I could see her having many roles in Starfleet before she eventually takes over to run the whole thing. (laughs) And I love that for her. Yes! Like, Dahl is absolutely going to be a great captain, but so is Gwyn. Right, in different ways. Yeah! Because they have different skill sets, and Starfleet needs all of it. Yes. People say sometimes, not that there's too much Star Trek, but that, you know... There's too many different ways. There's too much Star Trek that's not what I want. Mm-hmm. I just, I want mm-hmm. Captain Kirk and I want Captain McCard and I want, you know, something that makes me feel safe and good and I know who the heroes are. Well, now they have strange new worlds. And I'm the opposite, as we know. And I love the exploration of how many different ways there are to be a captain. Tilly is going to be a great captain. Gwyn is going to be a great captain. Beckett Mariner is going to be a great captain in wildly different ways. Even if we just confine it to a narrow period of Star Trek's existence, Captain Picard and Captain Sisko and Captain Jellicoe are all great Starfleet captains with completely different priorities (laughs) and styles. Great. Which is why when we have these conversations about who's the best Starfleet captain, I abstain or complain about it (laughs) because Mm -hmm. Starfleet is so much wider than that question. Yes. Starfleet needs all of them because the Federation, the only way the Federation as a concept can work is if every single variety of captain is possible and mm. is validated by Starfleet as a whole. We right. need all of them. I mean, not to be a wishy-washy lefty, but diversity is the Federation's strength. And if Starfleet doesn't reflect that diversity, then how are they different from the Klingon Empire or the Romulan High Command? Right, Exactly. We absolutely need the Vulcans and the Klingons and the Romulans and the Tellarites and the Andorians. We need to see the wide variety Mm. of quote-unquote humanity within all of those other cultures. 
the you know every Klingon is a warrior storyline that doesn't work in reality because not every human is a human like <laughs> they're not all the same right <laughs> there's there no, there's no such like in Australia not everybody is the same right in Connecticut like, <laughs> not everybody is the same no matter how small or large your mm. community is everybody is an individual and there are going to be traits that are very similar and there are going to be shared culture and there is going to be shared traditions but it's just this it's nonsense like even the vulcans which i think are the ones who are the most obsessed with being the same mm. there is a variety of vulcan mm. out there and there always was but all you have to do is watch a mock time Yes. There are like eight different kinds of Wilkins in that movie. In yeah. That show. So this brings us to the Von Akut and we learn about the Diviner's history and more about his people and the fact that Ascensia slash the Vindicator has a similar goal to the Diviner, <laughs> but through the wackiness of time travel, she has only been pursuing this quest for three years as opposed to the Diviner's 20. This is super interesting Yes. <laughs> I love this. I kind of ship them. Oh, yeah. I was about to say, I love that they started out the same age and now he's older. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm super into that. Okay. Just going to say, I love that she is still fiery. Yes. And he is jaded. And that is so, so interesting. And yet, I actually do think that she could genuinely turn to support Janeway because she is still fiery, she is still flexible. And Mm -hmm. the Diviner has spent 20 years enslaving people. She has spent three years embedded in Starfleet. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm. Her reality is actually, if the We Are Starfleet works at all, it's totally working on her. Right. She's in it. And you know, you know, you fake it till you make it kind of thing going on. And it doesn't work for everyone. Look at Lorca. But if she turns, that's cool. And if she doesn't turn, that makes her interesting as well. There is right. no bad option here. I know you. You just said, and yes, the diviner. I, 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 I agree with you that he has less of a chance of turning. But I also think that he does have a chance. Yes. One, because she specifically says, you are on the side of maybe these guys are okay. (laughs) And therefore, he wasn't always anti-Federation. It was only because the Federation failed him that he became anti-Federation. And, you know, I get that. That's a good motivation. And also, we were talking in the previous episode about how we were, you know, is he pretending mm. or does he did he actually forget? And this episode shows that he did actually forget. The only thing he remembered was his daughter. Yes. <laughs> Which and- is actually really sweet. And it shows that what is most important to him is actually legacy yes. and not revenge. And it suggests that on some level he really does love Gwyn, which means, like Emperor Giorgio, there is capacity for love and therefore redemption. 
even though exactly. his understanding of her change of heart was simply she met a boy because he cannot fathom that she might come to understand that what he is doing is wrong. But that comes back to the whole, like, both Essentia and mm. the Diviner, the Vindicator and the Diviner and my whole Seska and Emperor Giorgio mm. issue of if you are raised in a certain mindset, it's very difficult to go against that. Yes. And so he cannot fathom that. And that is such realistic parental behavior, though. You know, your kid is growing up. They've made a choice you don't like. You don't understand their thinking. So you assume it's some outside influence. Oh, it's that best friend you don't like. Oh, it's a boy she met. Good parents can think past that and come to a better conclusion. I don't know that the diviner is that good. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, he is not a good parent. No. He's a Darth Vader parent. Yeah. I was literally just talking about how he's a psychopath. However, (laughs) that doesn't mean that he doesn't have the capability to love. And Mm. it doesn't mean that he doesn't have the capability to change. Right. I am always going to be on the side of when presented with the option to make a better choice, it is possible to do it. Even if you have made the wrong choice 500 times, the 501st time, you still have that option and you can still make that better choice and it will still matter. And that brings us to the sunk cost fallacy, which I think is the main thing that's going to keep the vindicator and the diviner from having a change of heart. But that doesn't mean they can't. And I'm also curious to know what Chakotay is doing on their home planet, trapped Mm. in the future with Mm. his crew. Because one thing we know about Chakotay is he's, I don't want to say a walking, talking case of Stockholm Syndrome, because Stockholm Syndrome doesn't exist. But you leave him in one place long enough, he is going to change sides. He did it with Janeway, and he did it in Year of Hell with Anorax. And I would like to see what he does. Yes. I mean, his strength is that he can see multiple sides of a situation. His weakness is that then he attaches himself to one and trusts too easily, Seska. But who is he befriending? Who is he learning from? And what is he in turn teaching them? Yes. And I, I'm really hopeful that that's where it's going. Yes. That they are using Chakotay as the Chakotayness of it all. Yeah to, yeah, to say, hey, you know what? My culture was also totally destroyed by the Federation. Yes. They also abandoned me. Before that, historically, his culture was destroyed by contact with Europe. Yes. Every time some new group came in, we lost again, again and again and again. We continuously lose. And yet we still exist and we still matter and I am going to help you. (laughs) Like I really, I really want the end of this whole arc to be actually there are 500 Solom people and Mm. we are going to relocate them and we are going to help them. And the Federation is going to apologize Mm -hmm. and acknowledge their wrongs. They're going to say, Hey, actually, we did not treat you in in a manner that befits our ideals. Yes. And we're going to make up for that. 
Yes. You know, I was saying weeks ago that we could just George Lucas in Tuvok for Chakotay and it wouldn't make a difference. But if that is, excuse me, if that is the resolution, that it means Chakotay is the only character and maybe Major Kira. But imagine if this story was about Major Kira. Anyway. No, no, no. If they did that, it would go so far in fixing Chakotay's problematic status. If they actually used his identity as a indigenous person mm. to say, you know what, my culture has been has been attacked and abandoned and set upon over and over and over again for many centuries, and I am going to help you rebuild. Yes, because that's what we're good at. Yes. It shouldn't have to be, but that is First Nations excellence. Right, exactly. It's acknowledgement that First Nations ha- are in exactly the right place to help this alien culture do that. Mm. Mm. And yeah, it, sh- it shouldn't be the way it is. But I was at an amazing meeting today at work, like one of those meetings where yeah, I, I'm in a lot of meetings where nothing happens. But <laughs> I hear in the engagement council, we discuss what we can do mm. to to help our community as a whole. Not even just the university or the campus, but the town that we live in and the state that we live in and the country that we live in and even the worlds that we live in, like global engagement. And it's always inspiring to me. And it's like the meeting that I look forward to every month. And we were discussing eco-anxiety, which is the idea that, you know, climate change is unstoppable, that nothing we do matters, that we might as well just give up, throw our hands and enjoy what time we have. Yes. And that creates this, this absolute anxiety Mm. of, you know, what does life even mean anymore Mm. if the world is literally ending? It's paralyzing. And the indigenous populations of every country that we might live in have been dealing with eco-anxiety for literally 500 years yes. <laughs> because colonizers just showed up and were like we're taking over your land and and there's nothing you can do about it i read an essay just recently by an indigenous person pointing out that this sense of eco-anxiety is extremely white Yes. So the point of this conversation was we have to go to them. They're the ones who can help us and we have to listen to them and we have to center them and we have to, you know, again, apologize to them and say, we created this for you. And now we are asking you to, you know, help us anyway. Yes. (laughs) And I feel like that's where Chico Day is. And I want that for him. It's very funny that you tie this into contemporary environmental anxiety because I was thinking about the Vonnegut and this idea that instead of rebuilding their ruined world, they're going to use their final resources to travel in time and seek vengeance. And that's real Elon Musk colonizing Mars thinking. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But also like it's sort of like when when vengeance becomes your entire cultural mm. touchstone. Mm. because of this idea that you can't fix it that it's too big it's too broken yes and truthfully 
The Federation made first contact with a culture that was maybe technologically capable, but was not emotionally or psychologically developed enough to handle it. But <laughs> the Vonna could also bear some responsibility. They cannot just blame the Federation for not stepping in. This is not a direct parallel for Europe colonising the world. Right. Because there was a civil war created, yeah, basically. Yeah, So, yeah. you know. But, I mean, again, it's all interesting and it's all political. And that's, yeah. just, you know, then then you can sort of graft it onto, like, the American experiment. Yes, and, yes. And, you know, please, fix it. <laughs> so... The complaint that the problem with the Federation was not just that they triggered the Civil War, but then they didn't step in to stop it. That is so interesting to me. It's it's right. like it's like you... Prime Directive stuff. Yeah, going yeah. On. And yep. you know, I hate the Prime Directive, and I definitely think that if your first contact triggers a Civil War, you should probably stick around to like try and negotiate a conclusion. But also, why could they not? Ne- like, if, if they wanted a mediator, why could they not? Like, that alone is common ground. Why couldn't they build on that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's also, I mean, not to bring the Kazan up again, but, like, why couldn't they ask the Kazan to be their mediator? Like, you know, obviously, the, because the Kazan are terrible. Yeah, but, they would do but, a very bad you job. Know, but why did they go to the Federation and yeah, be like, this yeah. is it, you're the only people who can help us? And it's like, okay, but maybe not. Maybe you can save yourselves. Mm. Like, I know, like, you shouldn't have to, and I get that. Like, you shouldn't have to, but also at a certain point, when the options are total destruction or, you know, we we put in the effort ourselves, <laughs> that, you know, it, it comes back to climate change. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can give in to nihilism or you can make sure that you are separating everything into recyclables and trash and food waste like you know you can you can do the best you can right individuals cannot fix it but that doesn't mean that individual effort is meaningless however exactly. recycling is a scam at least recycling in australia is a scam. you know reuse reuse mm-hmm. reuse reuse the gift giving season mm. Everyone, hi everyone, it's the gift giving season and I want (laughs) to suggest that you look around your house and you say, what of this stuff that I already own and don't want, can I give away as a nice gift? That is a great idea. Upcycle is totally a thing, do it. Yeah. It will save you money, it will save the environment, and it will show that you put a lot of thought into Mm. the person that you are giving it to. Mm. Also, I know I just said recycling is a scam. Plastics recycling is a scam. I think cardboard recycling is okay. Anyway, none of these observations about the Vonnegut and the Federation are criticisms of the writing. I think it's really realistic and interesting that it's so complicated and that there are really no easy answers. And I know I just said they could sit down and talk about it, but... That's like saying we here on Earth can just stop climate could change. Could sit down and talk about it. Yeah. And yeah. guess what? That goes poorly. But the same way as when a couple weeks ago I said, hey, actually, my election went way, way better mm-hmm. than expected. Don't give up. Right. Don't give up on humanity. Don't give up on others. You know, just keep trying. There. Okay, so now to bring... Cause just because this is the podcast where I... I mention every single thing that I'm watching. Yes. <laughs> so 
the final episode of Andor's first season. Yes. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm literally going to cry. So at one point, there is a narration of a manifesto of a rebel. And the last word in it is try. Yeah. And as someone who has for 50 years been railing against Yoda and his do or do not, there is no try. Fuck Yoda. Fuck Yoda. Try. <laughs> it is in my bio. Mm-hmm. Like, there is a try. And always, if you ever have a choice of not trying or trying, trying is always the better choice. I think that's the fundamental difference in philosophy between classic Star Wars and Star Trek. And it's delightful to me that Andor is doing what it can to complicate that at the Star Wars end. But I also love that, you know, we've seen Luthen through the whole season of Andor sort of organising a top-down rebellion. Like, the rebel cells are out there, they're fighting amongst themselves, and he's pushing them into the right places, but he is working mainly from Coruscant. And then he comes to Ferrix and he sees this uprising and he had nothing to do with it. It is a completely bottom-up rebellion. And the hope in his face as he realises that he's not the only one and that there are people he has never even heard of who are doing their part to fight fascism is so exciting. And so that's, that's the other thing. Try and know that everyone else is trying. People in prison who have lost all hope mm. that anyone else even knows that they're there. Yeah. One way still out. still willing to fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's sort of the first episode of Star Trek Prodigy. And then right. they go back okay. and they save the rest of the prisoners. And because this is a children's show and not a fairly adult Disney show, they actually <laughs> save everyone. <Succeed>. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a lot of feelings mm. about community yep. being the key yes. to rebellion. <laughs> that is just really, really a strong and important concept mm. to me. And I want everyone to take it and put it into their real life. And not just rebellion in the sense of overt fascism like the Empire but against injustice and cruelty mm-hmm. and the unthinking bureaucracy that mows people down. Anyway, that's the Anti-Matter <laughs> Manifesto. Try. Try! Also, Star Trek is better than Star Wars, but they're both good. I mean, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I know, it's like ranking captains for you. Sorry. Can I have a... I have a lot of feelings. You do, and they're all over your face. They're all over my face. Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram, all at antimatterpod, and write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us next week when we'll be discussing the next episode of Star Trek Prodigy. And everything else that Anake is watching. (laughs)